What's up, Fever Dreamers? I'm going to start calling you guys that from now on. It's, uh, one, probably more appropriate, and two, easier to pronounce. This is episode 70 of Celluloid Fever Dreams, a weekly look at a film that I think is, well, overlooked or underappreciated. As always, I'm your host, the not misbehaving and not Scandinavian, Wyndham Jennings. This week, we're looking at the 2018 film, Stockholm, starring, starring Ethan Hawke, Nomi Rapace, and Mark Strong. As always, we start with our two-second synopsis. In this case, brainwashing bank robbery happens. For a better synopsis, in 1973 in Stockholm, Sweden, a man pretending to be an American robs a bank, takes three hostages, and makes some, well, unusual demands involving a getaway car, a certain amount of money, and that uh, his buddy be released from prison to join him at the bank. Over the course of the standoff, the hostages form a bond with the uh, bank robbers themselves, eventually helping them actually uh, in their plan to try to get away from the police. And all of this is based on a true story. I have to admit, I was a little excited about this film when I decided to do it, because uh, even before I decided to do a podcast, I had started a list of films, because every week I, I tend to watch two or three YouTube channels collecting the best movie trailers of the week, and there would always be films that I wanted to watch, and then I'd forget about them until I either stumbled across them on uh, some streaming service, or one of my friends mentioned he had seen this movie and it would you know, sort of click. That, oh yeah, I wanted to see that as well. Especially because a lot of them you know, were not really the mainstream movies. You know, I live in a small town. We have uh, two movie theaters. One of them I won't even go to. It, it's just not very well run. Uh, they don't keep it clean. Uh, and the other one's just old as the hills. So... Yeah, the the point is they mainly they don't get anything that's not mainstream in either one of them. So the chances of me see a film like Stockholm is either going to be wait until it comes to a streaming service or I stumble across it, uh, you know, in a store or somewhere and just buy it and watch it. But because of you know, me not being able to see them when they come out, and also not being able to keep all of the titles of these films in my head. That's when I started the list, and uh, you know the list is where I pull all my movies from for the podcast. And yeah, there's some a bunch on there that I have seen before. I've expanded it because that's the nature of the podcast. I'm going to be talking about films I've seen before, but yeah, the majority of them are films like this that I saw the trailer, thought it looked really interesting, and then it just kind of disappeared, and I haven't really seen people talking about them. So, like I said, I, I'm kind of excited to talk about this one because it's uh, from before I decided to do the podcast. Now, uh, as I mentioned, Stockholm is based on an actual incident. In August 1973, Jan Eric Olson uh, disappeared on furlough from the penitentiary that he was incarcerated in and a few days later held up the bank at, I'm going to try to pronounce this, uh, Normal Stork. 
This led to a six-day standoff between him, uh, Clark Olufsen, who was a, another prisoner that Jan Eric had uh, the police release and bring to the bank. He was supposed to be like a, a liaison between the two sides. And, uh, and the hostages. And over the course of the six days, the hostages started helping the two men. Uh, you know, helped them formulate plans and, and uh, you know, formed a, a relationship with them. They became friends to the point that the hostages defended the robbers, uh, criticized the police response to what was happening outside, uh, criticized the prime minister. And uh, according to some, some uh, reports, as I was doing research for this, the actual hostages raised money to help with the defense of the two men who had held them hostage for six days. Uh, all of this led to criminalologist, that's a hard word to say, criminalologist Niels Betterot coining the phrase normal storg syndrome to try to explain why the uh, hostages had developed a bond with the men who were holding them captive. Of course, that's kind of a mouthful. So as the story broke internationally, it went from normal stork syndrome to Stockholm syndrome because the whole incident took place in the capital city of Stockholm in Norway. Uh, well, it, it was called that everywhere except for in the Die Hard movies where it's called the Helsinki syndrome. And I'm guessing that means that in the Die Hard universe, Helsinki is the capital of... Uh, Norway, and not a city in Finland. Uh, anyway, anyway, uh, Stockholm Syndrome is very basically defined as hostages developing a psychological bond with their captors during captivity. Now, here's the thing. It's not included in the Diagnostic and St Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders here in America. Uh, due to there being a lack of consistent uh, academic research, lack of a consistent body of academic research around uh, the syndrome, because it's just not that common. Uh, in fact, the most famous uh, defense, you know, use of Stockholm Syndrome uh, in a situation or in a criminal defense would actually happen in 1976 during the Patty Hearst trial. Uh, in 1974, Patty Hearst the granddaughter of William Randolph Hearst, of Hearst Publishing, was kidnapped by the Symbionese Libya. Oh, good Lord, was kidnapped in 1974 by the Symbionese Liberation Army. Now, if you're sitting there trying to figure out what country Symbionese is from, uh, it's not a single country. Uh, and in fact, the name comes from the word symbiont, and the group, which was a left-wing terrorist organization chose the name because they thought that everyone needed to come together to fight against uh, you know, fascism and the government and capitalism, etc. So they kidnapped Patty Hearst in 1974, and then uh, several months later, she's caught on camera helping them rob a bank, and she's changed her name to Talia, if I remember right. So when she was arrested, along with the others, and put on trial in 1976, that was her defense, was they had wore her down and uh, to the point that she just identified with them, you know, as a survival mechanism. 
and then just sort of went along with their plans. And interestingly enough, uh, while doing some research for the film and on, you know, Stockholm Syndrome, uh, according to one of the sources, one of the pages I come across, one of the sources I used, the last member of the Symbionese Liberation Army was arrested in like 2002. So, yeah, you, you had some people involved in this on the run for almost 30 years. It just, just blew my mind. And there, there's more coming up uh, later on revolving around uh, you know, the, the story in the film. I'll fill you guys in on you know, one of the things about the film that annoys me, and I'll go ahead and, and get to it, is based on a true story. And yet, at the end of the film, they don't do, which to me is just standard, kind of a where are they now or what happened after the events of the film. Um, and and the, the writer-director has given a reason for that in, in uh, interviews, the few interviews and articles I could find online about the movie. Uh, but at the same time, I feel like it's something that he could have done. Uh, okay, you know, I'll just, get, I'll just get into it here. Despite the fact that this is based on a true story, and that there's you know uh, articles and, and news stories and all sorts of documentation of it and who was involved. Uh, Robert Boudreau, who was the writer director of the film, changed the names of everyone involved other than uh, Prime Minister Olaf Palma. And the reason he didn't change uh, Olaf Palma, the reason he didn't change the Prime Minister's name is the Prime Minister was assassinated in 1986. 13 years after the film come out at the time of the filming of this. And as far as I know, at the time of recording this episode, everyone else involved uh, in the crime is still alive. So because of that, Boudreaux said that he changed the names because, you know, of course it's a fictionalized account. So I'm sure some things are exaggerated as always, some things are, are probably combined, you know, et cetera, to, to tell a more interesting story. And if he's changed the names, then, well, you get less complaints from the people who were involved at the time. The story in the film is based on a New Yorker article titled The Bank Drama, written by Daniel Lang. Uh, and the thing that gets me in, in doing the research for this episode and, and learning about the actual incident and it sort of gets me with, it, it's kind of like uh, the movie Masterminds, the uh, you know Kristen Wiig, Zach Galifianakis film, based on the armored truck robbery down in Charlotte. And Charlotte's just three hours down the road from where I live in Virginia. But I remember when that story unfolded, and and you know keeping up with it, listening to it at, uh, on the radio, the, the local morning shows, keeping up with it every day as it was unfolding around here because it was a huge story. And much like that, in this movie, some of the crazy craziest elements of it don't wind up in the film. Uh, that's not to say the film doesn't have some crazy moments in it, but there's still some things that happened actually and that we have records of that you know just are not used as part of the story. Uh, like, you know, like I said, even the the ending of it, I was expecting there to be just a simple, you know, this is what happened to everybody, just a quick little sentence or two. Now, some of that's pretty unusual, but uh, yeah, none of that. The hostage situation was a huge deal 
in uh, Sweden at the time, according to my sources, and uh, apparently was the first criminal situation to be broadcast on live television. That's uh, actually a joke they use in the film, as one of the reporters is like, you know, we, we should be covering the Crawdad Festival, but instead, we're here, outside the bank. But in both instances, the robbery happens, and in both instances, the robber, who is Jan Eric Olsen in uh, real life, and is Lars in the film, played by Ethan Hawke, uh, disguise themselves as Americans in order to rob the bank. In both instances, uh, you know, they kept one of the, in both instances they kept hostages. In real life, there was four hostages. In the film, there's only three: two men and a woman. Uh, and in both instances, he makes some pretty crazy demands. Like I said, he asked for a getaway car. Uh, in the in the movie, I believe it's three million dollars in American money. In actual life, I believe it was uh, three million in um, the the local local currency. For some reason, I didn't write that down. The currency uh, used in Stockholm in uh, Sweden, and he asked for his partner again in real life. That was Clark Olufsen to be brought to the bank. In the movie, it's a uh, Gunner played by Mark Strong. And in uh, both of them, there is the, the standoff between the police and the hostages coming around to deciding to help the two robbers try to get away. Uh, Writer-director Robert Boudreau, I should have covered this earlier, he's only done a few other films. He's done That Beautiful Somewhere, Born to be Blue, and Delia's Gone. Uh, but everyone is surprised by the fact the hostages don't want to cooperate with the police. They defend the robbers. Uh, the captives refuse to exit the vault because they believe the cops will kill the, the two robbers. In the film, there, that's actually a, a plot point. The chief is, is tell, telling the officers, uh, you know, as soon as we get the hostages clear, just you know, gun the two of them down and end this. But uh, in, in both cases, the uh, captives defended the robbers from the cops. But... Everyone was surprised by how close they came. They became in this situation. Uh, e even the uh, e even the hostages themselves said they could not explain why they became so friendly and so cooperative. Uh, you know, with the two robbers over the course of the few of the uh, days they were stuck in the bank together. Olson himself blames the hostages for the situation. He says they did everything that he told them to. And he often wondered why they didn't just outright attack him and uh, Olufsen. You know, they outnumbered him, uh, even though they had weapons. He, he said he was just surprised by how long it went on. The uh, only other explanation I found uh, was from one of the hostages who said, we were stuck in there so long together, we just started to get to know each other. So, you know, what other choice did you have but to become friends with the people you're stuck in there with? Yeah, I gotta, I gotta say, I like the cast in the film. Uh, you know, let's talk a little bit about uh, Lars, who's played by Ethan Hawke, who has been an actor for almost forty years now, starting in the mid '80s in the film Explorers. Some of the other notable films on his on his IMDb IMDb page include Dead Poet Society, Reality Bites, Gattaca, the Before series with a uh, French actress Julie uh, Delpy, The Purge. Uh, and most most recently, you can catch him in the film The Black Phone and the Disney Plus series Moon Knight. 
uh, and I would like you on record because he brought this up in interviews. The epic mustache he's wearing in this film is his. He grew it for the role. Uh, and I love him in this role. He, Lars is a complicated character as he comes through, comes through the bank and he is, you know, loud and brash and he is, you know, everything you expect a, a you know, like a, I, I guess you could say the European version of an American to be. But he's also someone that, you know, takes care that he only keeps a couple of hostages. Uh, he is threatening, but as the story plays out, you find out that it's you know, just a, a bit of a, a joke, that he's just trying to be threatening. He doesn't really want to hurt anybody. He goes out of his way to keep from hurting the hostages. Uh, and he's also vulnerable around uh, Bianca, who's played by uh, Nomi Rapace. He, he sort of lets his guard down, and she's the one to start figuring out that he's not this hard ass that he wants uh, everyone to believe he is. In fact, uh, the first cop on the scene comes in and just takes a couple of shots at him and uh, Lars shoots back and shoots the gun out of his hand and even he's surprised about that but then he chastises the cops he's yelling at him he's like you know who are you to come in here what if you had shot one of the hostages he's like who does this who who comes in and just starts blazing away in a room full of people uh, and, and it is a complicated role like I said he has to go from you know this brash braggart to is in full control of the situation, uh, you know, to somebody who is in way over their head and, and just bouncing back and forth, you know, between all these extremes. It's so fast, it's almost enough to give you whiplash. And, and uh, you know, Ethan Hawke, I mean, it's Ethan Hawke. He pulls it off greatly. I mean, and, and maybe I'm a little biased because, you know, I'm an American and a lot of our stories are anti-authority or, uh, you know, the outlaws you know, going against the, the police. I mean, come on, look at look at me coming up at Smokey and the Bandit, uh, you know, the Robin Hood stories. I know they're British, but still, it's outlaws against the police. But, and also where I grew up, I mean, I don't know how many people know this, but just a stone's throw up the road from me is Franklin County, which is the moonshine capital of the world. And that is on the sign that welcomes you to the county. Okay, so they're proud of it. You know, if you watch Moonshiners, like, that's that's my people. So I've kind of grown up, and yeah, I've, I've known a few Moonshiners in my life. But, you know, coming up, you're kind of raised in this area of the country with the idea that uh, nobody with a badge is your friend. And uh, nobody with a badge is anything but a crook. And that image... Really wasn't helped when uh, our sheriff and, and uh, several deputies were arrested for running uh, well, a, a criminal enterprise and arresting some of their rivals in the county. Uh, oh, God, when was that? About 10 years ago now? Like right before my daughter was born, if I remember right? Uh, look up Frank Castle, C-A-S-S-E-L, in Martinsville, Virginia, if you want the full story about that. So, yeah, I, I like Lars, and the filmmaker portrays him as, as a, you know, someone who's on the wrong side of the law but knows it. Like, like he says, once you start making money the easy way, it's not easy to go back and make it an honest way. And I really like Lars. And honestly, I think Ethan Hawke, playing off of uh, Nomi Rapace, 
who plays Bianca. And of course, you know her. She's been in uh, the Millennium Trilogy, you know, the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo series of films. Uh, she made her American debut in Sherlock Holmes' The Game of Shadows. She's also been in Prometheus, uh, What Happened to Monday, in which she played seven different roles. And most recently in the films Lamb, The Trip, and You Won't Be Alone. Uh, I actually got to watch You Won't Be Alone. It's streaming on Peacock at the time of this recording. And uh, it's a really trippy kind of film. It starts off really weird. It's about witches and uh, this witch who takes over, who kills people and shapeshifts into them, takes over their lives and uh, in an effort to try to learn what it is to be human. And I'm not doing it justice, but it's a really good, good uh, film and a really good story. A lot of heart to it. I really enjoyed it. And uh, uh, Nomi plays one of the people that's uh, taken over. Uh, and I love her in this film. I love her as Bianca, one of the bank employees. Uh, her and Ethan Hawke, I think, are great together. There's a, a certain chemistry there. I would love to see them do more projects together, actually. But I do love her as Bianca. She's a mother. Uh, you know, She tries to make sure that the other hostages are being taken care of at first. And then once she starts figuring out Lars, she kind of becomes a mother to him uh, as well. You know, Trying to get him to at first do the right thing and then later on to stick to what he's doing you know to try to help him convince the cops that you know he needs to be let out of there they need to just let him go etc and uh there's a an iron core to her that you see in several scenes i mean the one of the first things you see her do is they let her husband come in to make sure that she's all right and she's sitting there trying to give him instructions on how to reheat the fish she'd set down for dinner so that him and the kids would have something to eat just in case the hostage situation isn't resolved you know, b before dinner time. And so you, you get this one idea of, of her. And then later on, you know, when Ethan Hawks, you know, when Lars has made the demands of, oh, I want a getaway car and the hostages are coming with us. And they're like, no, we're, you're not taking the hostages with you. And, and he's you know, doing the whole thing of I will kill a hostage if you don't come back and say that I can take a hostage with me. And then Bianca calls the prime minister and is explaining to him that, no, you need to let us go with him. And the prime minister is like, no, we're not going to do that. And you know, what if he kills you? And her response is, he's going to kill us if you don't let us go. And we're willing to take the risk that he might kill us later, you know, and, and calls out the, you know, the leader of the country over this hypocrisy of you're willing to let us die now because you don't want us to, you know, you don't want to take the chance that we might live later. Uh, and she really goes hard later in the film trying to do everything she can to convince the cops. And I'm not going to spoil it that, you know, Lars is a dangerous person and he's willing to, you know, hurt people and, and uh, do whatever it takes in order to you know get out of there. Uh, Lars' cohort is Gunner, played by Mark Strong, who's been in the, such films as Syriana, uh, Stardust, Revolver, Rock and Roll, uh, uh, Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spy, the Kingsman films, and uh, Shazam. Which, which I want to go on record as saying I think Shazam is a very underrated superhero movie. Uh, and honestly, Shazam... Uh, you know, the tone of that film, and people, some people who talk about it still 
a dark DCEU film, but the tone of that film is really a lot closer to how they should be doing Superman. And honestly, Shazam's probably probably my favorite DC uh, universe film right now. Uh, go check it out before I wind up doing an episode on it. Uh, and I like Mark Strong. He's I haven't seen him in a whole lot of stuff. Uh, but he's a good foil here for uh, Lars. You know, again, him and Ethan Hawke play well off each other. Uh, Gunner comes in as, as like you know the hardened crook, and you know he's an accessory to murder, you know, and, and et cetera, et cetera. And then as it goes on, you realize he's maybe just a little more competent than Lars. You know, maybe not. Yeah, uh, you, know, you know, again, it, you see the character arc, and you get to see who he is around the hostages versus who he is uh, trying to deal with the police. And the chief of police, got to talk about this, uh, is played by Christopher Heyerdahl. You may recognize from such things as Highlander, The Final Dimension, The Chronicles of Riddick, uh, Twilight Breaking Dawn, or on TV in such shows as True Blood, Hell on Wheels, where he played The Swede, and uh, most recently in Peacemaker. Uh, and again, it might have something to do with my upbringing, or it might have something to do, um, you know, with with uh, you know, just the, the pop culture here in America. But yeah, you know, the police are not the good guys in this film. They're bloodthirsty. They're willing to let the hostages die. Like I said, at the end of the film, he's willing to just gun down, um, you know, Lars and Gunner, rather than take them in. It, it, you know, they're very ruthless. So you can kind of understand why the hostages in the film do help help uh, Lars and Gunner and do you know, whatever they can in order to convince the police, no, these are dangerous men and you need to let them leave and you need to let us leave with them. Um, and, you know, and that might be kind of a knock on the script because I'm not going to knock you know, Christopher Heyerdahl because I, I think he's, everything I've seen him in I've really enjoyed. But, you know, the police do seem to be a little one-note. Um which, even in the real case, the hostages called out the prime minister and the police department saying that they were very quick to escalate to talk of violence and uh, you know, to just be very um, blasé about whether the hostages lived or died. You know, they just did not give, you know, give a rat's ass, according to the hostages. That, you know, that was one of the reasons... Yeah, one of the reasons one of them gave for you know why we we kind of helped the robbers because seemed like they actually cared a little more about us than the cops did at times. A uh, couple of other little just trivia things about the rest of the cast: uh, the prime minister is played by Shanti Roney, and the only reason I'm bringing that up is because he actually played one of the robbers in a Swedish TV production about the robbery. Um, an actor, Ian Matthews, who plays Detective Holsten Venter and is the first cop to respond to the robbery. And honest to God, with the uh, hair hairstyle he has and the mustache he has, when he first rolled up into the bank, I thought he was William Forsyth. Uh, noted character actor. Honestly, he looks just like William Forsyth, well, with longer hair, looks just like William Forsyth did in um, the Liam Neeson film uh, Cold Pursuit. Uh, one last little bit of trivia before we get into what I didn't like about the movie and, and what I feel like they did wrong. The uh, getaway car that Lars asks for is he asks for a Mustang, just like the one Steve McQueen 
drove in Bullet. Now, I'm not a car guy. I'm a movie guy. My dad is a car guy. My dad is scary when it comes to cars. Like, we can walk around, uh, you know, like old car shows in the area, and he can nitpick everything about the car. Like, the sign may say something like a 55 Chevy, and he can walk by it and not even slow down and go on. He says 55, but those headlights are 56. Those taillights are off 54. They didn't have those hubcaps until, like, 1960. I mean, he's like that kind of guy. Uh, but if there's one car I do know, it is the Steve McQueen Mustang from Bullet. The reason I know that is while my dad's not a movie guy, he's a Steve McQueen guy. And I have seen Bullet multiple times. Now, neither one of us likes uh, uh, you know, likes Ford motor cars at all. I explained that in the uh, Blues Brothers episode where I talked about Henry Ford being a massive anti-Semite and you know, receiving medals from Hitler and Ford Motor Company still making cars for the German army during World War II. Go back and listen to the Blues Brothers episode for, for uh, more in-depth. Uh, and my dad was just always a Chevy guy. He's never liked Fords. But the one Ford either one of us would ever own is the Steve McQueen Mustang from Bullet. Now, in this movie... They go out and they get a Mustang Boss 302. 1973 Mustang Boss 302. I'll give it. It's a nice looking muscle car. It's not the Steve McQueen car. Steve McQueen drove a Mustang GT Fastback in Bullet. And, and to give you an idea, I had to look up what kind of car they used in this movie. But I knew off the top of my head what car Steve McQueen drove in Bullet. And I probably haven't seen that movie in five years. Okay, the two things I will always, to the day I die, remember from Bullet is that Steve McQueen drives a Mustang GT Fastback, and in that one car chase, the car that he's after throws six hubcaps. So, uh, let's get into what I didn't like about the movie. Um, despite like the great performances from, from every one of the main cast, uh, I really don't feel like the movie lives up to its potential. You know, I, I got to mark it down as, as one of those that is so close, but just doesn't quite, you know, doesn't, doesn't quite pull it off. And I think part of the reason for that is they get a lot of the wacky stuff that happened, you know, a lot of the weird stuff that happened during the robbery right and that tone, and they get some of the, um, you, know, you know, sort of a lighthearted tone between the, the robbers and the hostages. But they don't give an equal weight to some of the more uh, serious or darker tones of what's going on. You know, uh, Bianca's speech to the the prime minister on the phone. Um, you know, the chief as as a he's you know getting getting ready to you know, bring them out of the vault. Uh, you know, the the and all the cops are there with their guns drawn. The, these are supposed to be serious moments. And they're played serious, but like you know, they they're not played with the same weight. I never really felt like the stakes were as high as they should have been, even towards the end with the chief, you know, blatantly telling the cops just gun them down as soon as we get the hostages clear. You know what I mean? It's like there's in order for a good crime story to work, you got to have that tension, even if it's a, a comedy like this. 
without that tension of the robbery, without the, the tension of the danger, uh, you know, there's even a point where Bianca's holding a gun on Lars. And, you know, he's telling her, he's like, you know, shoot me, shoot me and all this ends. And there's just not a lot to it. You know, like you, you don't feel like at any point she will pull the trigger. And it is sort of late in the film, but at the same time, you need some of that in order, in order to balance it out. And the film lacks that. And that's, that's one of my biggest problems with it. Uh, like I said, the other one is the whole, you know, what happened to everybody afterwards. You know, I mean, I get everybody's alive and you change the names, but that still doesn't leave off the fact that you could have just put at the end of it a quick shot of different people and been like, you know, Lars got 10 years for armed robbery. Uh, you know, Gunner got acquitted, you know, because that was part of his deal. And that's the other thing is it's teased several times that he's got a deal with the police to try to talk, uh, you know, Lars down. And there's nothing really ever done with that. Like, you know, there, there's one fight they get into, but again, there's no tension to it. Like, you're never... I never believed at any point Gunner was going to betray Lars or that he was actually working with the police. And to me, that's just something that's wrong with the script and, and wrong with the way the film was edited. You know, so I, I, I just kind of feel like, I don't know, maybe I'm just being whiny at this point, that I would have loved to have seen some of the stuff that actually did happen, even if you did have to change the names. You know, like the fact that, you know, Lars and, and uh, you know, Lars became friends with one of the hostages. Lars wrote a book about what he did. Lars, you know, got, uh, I think he arrested four more times. Uh, you know, Bianca and the other hostages, there was talk of them being arrested and charged as accessories after the fact because they did, you know, get so friendly with the, the robbers and, and did what they could to help them out. And then that was, a, you know, that whole case was dropped and, and they you know, did, did uh, uh, interviews and whatnot, trying to explain what happened and, you know, why they felt the way they did. You know, there's so much that they could have included or, like I said, just, you know, put at the end of, of like, a you know, this is what happened afterwards. You know, so, so that's my two biggest complaints is, one, I don't feel like the film went, went where it should have gone. You know, I... I Get you're doing a comedy, but you could have done a dark comedy. Um, you want an example of, uh, just off the top of my head, of a film that gets this right, that the serious moments are serious, and the comedy moments are comedy, and, and the weight of the two are, are given equal measure and the story works. It's a film uh, with Rain Wilson in it called Shimmer Lake. There are some goofy moments in the film. There's some you know, wacky... Uh, moments in the film and then there are some just dead serious oh my god what's going to happen next moments this film kind of lacks that and and so you know in order to answer the most important question in the world is it entertaining yeah um it, it's not the best film i've ever seen i don't regret watching it but again i don't also feel like there's a better film uh to be made, you know, even even with this cast, I feel like there's a better film there, and they just didn't seal the deal with it. All right, so that's Stockholm. Um, at the time of recording this, it is available on Tubi, 
uh, you can check around if you don't want to don't have Tubi or don't want to use Tubi. Uh, I think you can rent it uh, from a couple of other places as well. I think it's also on Canopy, not uh, not Hoopla, but I think it's on Canopy. So, what's our next film going to be? That's a good question. Maybe I need to figure that out one day. I, actually, you know what? Uh, one I heard somebody mention, I hadn't thought about in forever myself, but it is on the list. And it is one of my favorite Reese Witherspoon films. So next week's episode will be uh, Reese Witherspoon and Tobey Maguire in Pleasantville. How's that sound? Uh, but as always, you know, if you like what you heard, tell a friend. If you didn't, well, tell an enemy. If you want to keep up with me and, you know, see what else I'm watching, you can follow me on Letterboxd at Wyndham Jennings. I'm currently redoing my uh, lists. Uh, basically, all my lists at the at, uh, you know, before now were movies I watched for the podcast and uh, movies I just watched. So I'm trying to break them down into some other categories. You know, try to match more with what I say here on the podcast. So you, you have like the all-in films that you're just you know there for the ride and, and fully invested and and love it, or you don't. And, uh, you know, or, or films like this one where it's so close to being a really good film, but they kind of fumbled it at the last second. And there's just something about it that just doesn't bring everything together. Uh, so yeah, you can check me out on Letterboxd. You can follow me on Twitter at uh, C Fever Dreams. Follow me on uh, TikTok and um, Instagram at Celluloid Fever Dreams. Uh, but until next time, uh, don't forget there's a lot of things you can be in life. Kind is one of the better ones, especially to yourself. And until next week, I have been Wyndham Jennings. This has been Celluloid Fever Dreams. Go out and find something interesting to watch. See ya.